All right, everybody, if you have your Bibles this morning, please go ahead and turn in them with me to Genesis chapter 4. It's been a bit of a crazy morning. We have baptisms coming up after the message, so there's a lot of excitement here, but I am very excited as well to jump back into Genesis after a one-week break last week as we heard from Marty Machowski about gospel-centered parenting. But this week, we are right back into the book of Genesis together, and we're going to continue our study here by reading verses 1 to 16. It says this, now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Folks, when I was a teenager, I was very involved in a prison ministry through my youth group. And so me and fellow youth group members, along with some of our leaders, would go into different prisons in the county and also throughout the country and share the gospel with inmates who were oftentimes locked away in prison for life because of crimes that they had committed. We met men and women who had committed every type of sin imaginable, many of them very shocking. However, I don't think that we met with anyone whose sin was quite as shocking to us as a man named David Berkowitz. You may not know that name, but David Berkowitz is one of the most widely known serial killers in the entire world. Some know him as the Son of Sam. There have been movies that have been made about him and how he claimed to be possessed by a demon who told him to hunt down and to kill at least six people, to do great harm to others, and to participate in arson throughout New York City in the mid-1970s. 
meeting with the son of Sam was a fascinating experience. It was, it was fascinating first because by the time that we got to meet with him, after going through guarded gate after guarded gate, it was a top security prison, we finally came into this very simple room and sat around what was really just a kitchen table with a smaller looking man sitting there without any chains or handcuffs on him. He was probably at that point in his mid-40s. He had a massive scar going from one ear down his throat and onto his chest from an attack that happened in prison, and he was in the middle of serving six consecutive lifelong sentences for his crimes. But it was fascinating even more because by the time we met with David Berkowitz, he claimed to be a devoted Christian, and he was very sorrowful over what he had done. And folks, while I will never forget hearing David Berkowitz talk about his faith in Jesus, which seemed very sincere to us, I will also never forget hearing him talk about how logical it seemed to him in the 1970s to kill those people. David Berkowitz claimed back then that there was a demon who was telling him to commit those murders. And while when we met with him, he knew that he might not have been truly possessed by a demon at that time, still, he was very clear that it makes logical sense for someone who is so influenced by sin and by evil to go and to do great harm to those around them. David Berkowitz said, the devil wants us to harm each other. That's what he is all about. And then he was encouraging us as young people to fight against the evil of sin and Satan by seeking to love others even as Christ has loved us. And friends, we can't argue with that statement. Regardless of whether the son of Sam was truly a Christian or not, he was speaking biblical truth to us in that moment. He was saying that our sin along with the schemes of the devil, oftentimes leads towards us doing great harm to one another. And that is a very biblical idea. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 4. In this chapter, we see that as sin grows in our hearts and in this world, it, it separates us from God and from others in an increasing way. It, it separates and it does great harm. Folks, here's the main idea for our message this morning. When our sin grows, it separates us from God and others. But when our faith grows, it unites us to God and to others. That's a little more lengthy than normal. Let me say it again. When our sin grows, it separates us from God and others. But when our faith grows, it unites us to God and to others. And friends, I think that this passage has a lot of significance for many of us in this room. If you are someone who is dealing with broken relationships in your life, if if you and your spouse or, or you and your parents or you and some other family member or neighbor or coworker, if great harm has been done by you or by others in those relationships, I believe God wants to speak to you and encourage you this morning. And I believe that he wants to do that by having us look at two points together. Point number one, sin separates us from God and others. And point number two, faith unites us to God and to others. Let's go ahead and begin with the first. Point number one, sin separates us from God and from others. 
Friends, this, this consequence of, of separation between God and others should not be a surprise to us as we read this text. And it shouldn't be a surprise because up in chapter 3, verse 24, we saw two weeks ago the immediate effects of sin in that Adam and Eve were, were driven out of the Garden of Eden by God himself. So, so their sin separated them from God. But not only that, up in chapter 3, verse 16, we also saw that one of the effects of sin was that Eve's desires were now going to be contrary or against her husband. And then it also spoke of Adam ruling in an unloving way over his wife. And so where there was once unity and peace, there is now disunity and separation. Separation between God and humanity and separation between people. And in chapter 4, we see the increasing effects of this sin on display. But by observing the increasing, the the ever-widening separation that sin brings to our relationship with God and with others. Folks, this story of Cain and Abel is very interesting, isn't it? This story is inserted into the narrative very quickly. The narrative does not give extensive details. There's not a lot of information to draw out here. And and while that can seem a little bit confusing and even frustrating to understand what's going on, I think that it's very intentional. The the succinctness, the the brevity of this story serves a purpose. It, It pushes us as readers to see the immediate and the increasing effects of sin in this world and in our lives. See, when we come to the end of chapter 3, I think we all hope that the worst of the story has already happened. We hope at the end of chapter 3 that God's judgment against the serpent and his judgment against Adam and Eve, that, that that's all now over and that God is going to, to kind of quickly bring about resolution to the story, kind of solve the problems that now exist because of sin, and then everybody will live happily ever after. And folks, we can actually see that that is even what Eve was hoping for through a glimpse in chapter 4, verse 1, when she says, after giving birth to Cain, she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, isn't that a bit of a funny way to talk about your newborn son? Why not, I have gotten a child, or I have gotten a young boy? Why does she say, I have gotten a man? Well, that shows us that Eve and Eve anticipated this this quick resolution to the problem of sin in her life because God had said up in chapter 3, verse 15, that a descendant of the woman was going to, to crush the head of the serpent and solve the problem of sin and separation. And so it seems that Eve anticipated this resolution to come about very quickly, even through her firstborn son. But sadly... We know that that's not what happens. Now what we see here through the speed with which the narrative jumps right into the story of Cain and Abel and Cain's violence against his brother, what we see here is that because of sin, our hearts go from good to bad and from bad to worse and from worse to much worse. And all of that happens very, very quickly. What we see here is that that the sin in our hearts doesn't mess around. Sin takes action against others. And folks, this really is the point of this entire first part of our Bibles. 
Genesis chapters 3 to 11 really are written to show us the, the increasing corruption of sin in this world and in our own hearts. Genesis chapters 3 to 11 really are going to show us this very basic truth, but in vivid color and in dramatic ways, this truth that as sin grows, it separates us from God and from each other in increasing ways. Folks, do you know what this is kind of like? It's kind of like a horror film about a pandemic that gets out and begins to destroy everything. And now listen, I know that it's a little bit dangerous to use a pandemic illustration when we're all wearing masks because of COVID-19. But think about it with me for a moment. Think about those, those movies that you've seen or those books that you've read that have told the story about that, that vial with the virus in it. Oftentimes in the science lab and everybody's handling it carefully because they know how, how dangerous it is and then somebody accidentally bumps somebody else, it falls and it smashes and everybody realizes, oh no, the, the virus is out, it's out. But then there's always this, like, this season of waiting to see, oh, what's actually going to happen? Like, is it going to spread as much as we thought? Are things gonna be as bad? But, but then you begin to see the symptoms. And then you begin to see the spread. And then bad things really start happening. Folks, this is the drama that we see in Genesis 3 and beyond. The pandemic of our sinful pride is now out. And it is highly contagious. And it cannot be contained. And the effects of it are, are catastrophic. The effects of it are catastrophic on our relationship with God and on our relationship with each other. And how this story about Cain and Abel is told highlights these truths for us. Now, as we get into the story, it, it's not immediately apparent why God did not look upon Cain's offering with favor. Some people think that it's because Cain did not offer an animal sacrifice like his brother Abel did, but I don't think that that is the reason because we see in other parts of Scripture that fruit offerings are very legitimate offerings to bring before the Lord. So it doesn't seem to be the, the specific kind of Cain's offering that dis displeased the Lord, but rather the, the quality of the offering and therefore the, the heart of worship behind the offering that was the issue. And we can see this in that the text seems to highlight the way in which Abel brought his offering. So look at verse 4 with me. It says, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And so Abel seems to have brought the very best of his possessions. He brought the firstborn and the fat portion, which are valuable in that day. But it doesn't seem to be that way with Cain. It just says that he brought to the Lord an offering, just, just an offering, nothing more than that. And so in this, like with Adam and Eve, we see the tendency of sin in our hearts, in Cain's heart, to make us selfish, to, to value what we want rather than to value what God wants for us. Cain, it seems, did not believe that God was supremely valuable in life, and so he selfishly keeps what he loves for himself. And this is why God did not look on his offering with favor like he did with Abel. Because Cain's heart, like his parents before him, were, was prioritizing his way and his desires over God's way and God's desire. His heart was proving to be selfish before the Lord just as his parents' hearts had as well. But folks, notice the, the initial act of sin here 
is not even the only place we see the increasing effects of sin in Genesis chapter 4. No, there are other ways that this narrative highlights this increasing separation and severity. So, so Cain is shown to be a more reckless and careless man in his sin than, than Adam and Eve were before him. He's more, he's more bold in it. His response to God's judgment is more forceful and proud than his parents were. And even, even the punishment for his sin seen in verse 16 shows the, the separation from the Garden of Eden widening even more. As sin grows, it separates us from God and from each other. In his commentary on this, te- on this chapter, D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, In sketching the story of Cain and his descendants, Genesis illustrates the increasing grip of sin on the human race. Indeed, he says, Cain is portrayed as a more hardened sinner than Adam. Killing one's brother is more wicked than eating a protected fruit. Adam had to be persuaded to sin by the devil. Cain could not be dissuaded from sinning even by God himself. When questioned by God about his sin, Adam, though rather petulant, at least told the truth Cain lied and then makes a joke about it. Adam accepted God's judgment in silence, but Cain protested fiercely and was dispatched even further from Eden. And so do you see how the text is highlighting this this separation and this increasing severity for us? And again, it is not just between God and humanity, it's between members of the human race as well, even between brothers. Did you notice how many times the word brother is used in these 16 verses? In verse 2, it doesn't just say that Eve bore a child or a son. No, it says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. In verse 8, again, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain responds, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then we see the word brother again in verses 10 and 11. It's very clear that God is highlighting the the relational component and the effect of sin against our relationships and not just against God. In verse 7, in verse 7, God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door and that his desire, the desire of sin is contrary to Cain. That word contrary is the same word that God uses to describe Eve's sinful relationship towards her husband up in chapter 3, verse 16. And so, Cain's sin against Abel, the, the murder of his own brother, is the first example of how God's curse against Eve is going to be seen in greater and greater ways in this world. The pandemic of sin is spreading. Where there was once relational unity and peace, there is now relational disunity and hate. And friends, while this is a very sad story to read in our Bibles, I think that this is also very helpful for us to consider today. Listen, there is a reason why relationships with others in your life right now are so difficult. There is a reason why you have to work so hard at loving your spouse and you still seem to fight all the time. 
There, there is a reason why your relationship with your son or your daughter is not what it used to be. There's a reason why people spend years not talking to close family members. There's a reason why people like David Berkowitz would murder six people. And there's a reason why people like me commit murder through hatred into my heart every single day. The sin which separated us from the God in whose image we were made is sin that now separates us from others who are also made in his image. And this is bad news. It's really bad news. And it's going to get even worse. But friends, understanding the problem allows us to seek and to find the answer to the problem. And so here's the problem that we see in this text. Cain's sin against his brother started with a sin against God. That's the biggest problem. That, that's our greatest problem here today as well. Listen, folks, isn't it true that at times we can feel like the, the biggest problems in life are with other people? If we can just fix our marriage or if we could just fix that broken friendship or that relationship with our parents, if we could just fix the divisiveness all around us, if we could just fix the problem of racism or, or the bipartisan politics, if we could just all get along, right, then everything would be okay. That's what we all tend to think. But like with Cain, what we see here is that all of these problems relationally flow from a much bigger problem that we have with God himself. See, the text says in verse 5 that when his sacrifice was not accepted, Cain became angry and his face fell. Cain's biggest problem was that he had been created by God to worship God with his life and with all of his greatest possessions like Abel did. But when he chose selfishness over worship, then the relationship with God was broken and the relationships with his brother quickly followed. His sin against his brother came after his face fell before God. His murder was the result of his selfishness and failure to worship God for who he was. See, our sin against others comes from failing to find our rest and our peace and our hope and our joy in God. That is where all relational strife comes from in our lives. In the New Testament, the Apostle James says in James chapter 4, he says it this way. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James is simply saying that we fight and quarrel, we, we even murder others when our passions crave for something more than who God is and what he's already given to us. And folks, that should make a lot of sense to us because this happens to us all the time, right? We, we want respect. We want respect from our spouse or from our children, but when we don't think that we've gotten the respect that we deserve, we then lash out and that relationship is broken even more. We, we forget that we are perfectly loved by God and that, and that we can be satisfied in him and then we begin to want to be loved by others, by that guy or by that girl and then we manipulate them in order to get their attention or we lower our level of conviction in order to please them and ultimately we do more harm to the relationship than good. Listen, if you are selfish and self-serving in your relationship towards God, 
If you're not satisfied in him and in who he says that that you are through his son, Jesus Christ, in the gospel, you are going to be selfish and self-serving in your relationships with others as well. And this cycle never ends. Friends, I see this in my life all over the place. In fact, let me, let me walk you through a scenario that is sadly all too common in my life and in my home. Okay, let's, let's imagine that it is Monday morning. Monday is my day off. Actually, let me say that again. Monday is my day off, right? It's all about me, or at least that's what I like to think. Sometimes my family doesn't agree that Monday should be all about me. It doesn't make sense to me, but they just don't. And so as a result, things often don't go the way I hoped they would on Monday. It can often look like this. I walk downstairs on Monday morning after having slept in real late, and I come downstairs expecting perfection, and then someone has the audacity to not serve me in the way that I wanted to be served. Maybe they didn't leave me alone long enough to read my book like I wanted to, or maybe my wonderful wife Ashley has the audacity to remind me of something that needs to be done, and she might even do it before my second cup of coffee on my day off. And then what happens is in that moment I choose to serve my selfish heart rather than worshiping God for who he is and offering my day off and offering my energy to serve him and my family and I quickly become grumpy and irritable and then I quickly realize my failure. I'm not, I'm not ignorant to it but then rather than running to the cross I, I, I fall farther into condemnation and it makes me irritable and angry. And I don't go to the cross, I don't realize, oh wait, my identity is not in this failure, my identity is in Christ. Rather, I just stay there and the anger grows, the irritability grows, and suddenly a whole Monday is gone and I have been moody and miserable to those I love most. Does anybody else have Mondays like that? Maybe it's Saturday for you, maybe it is Monday for you, most people hate Mondays. Friends, when we let our sinful desires for approval and respect control our hearts, we quickly fall into patterns and sins that separate us from having peace with God and with each other. To not find your hope and your peace and your confidence and your joy in who God is alone is to invite all kinds of difficulty into your relationships throughout all of your life. And if you're anything like me, you know that these patterns are not going to go anywhere. We're always going to have mornings that we wake up grumpy. We're always going to have moments when people get, uh, who don't serve us and, and fail to, to meet our desires. We're always going to have moments when we get sinfully angry. People are always going to d- disappoint. And so what hope do we have for a peaceful relationship with, with God and with those around us? How can we as sinful, prideful people, be united to God and to others? How can we experience peace in our relationships with God and with others? Folks, that brings us to our second point this morning. Point number two, faith unites us to God and to others. See, in this story, we don't know much about Abel. The, the story focuses more on Cain because the story is being used to highlight the, the separating power of sin in this world. But what we do know is that Abel's offering was accepted and welcomed by God while his brother Cain's was not. Look at verse 4. It says, The Lord had regard for Abel and his off- offering. 
That word regard means to accept or to pay special attention to. There was something that drew God's attention and favor to Abel and to his offering. And church, today we have to ask the question, what was it? What was it that made God regard Abel's offering and not Cain's? Was it only the fact that Abel seems to have brought the very best of his flock, while Cain only seems to have brought a more generic offering? Is this why God had regard for Abel's offering? Well, it is that, but, but it's less about what Abel gave and more about how he gave it. Did, did God need Abel to give the fat portion to him? No, of course not. God doesn't need anything from, from Abel or from us. But what draws God's attention and favor to Abel is the faith that Abel had in him in order to give his very best. What, what drew God's attention was Abel's trust that God was supremely valuable to him, more valuable than his possessions, more valuable than his comforts. It was the faith in God and his promises that if he clung, that, that if he clung to God and his word, it would be better than if he clung to what he had and to his own comfort. This faith is what drew God's attention to Abel. God accepted Abel because Abel had faith that God was who he said that he was. He believed the promises of God and he entrusted his life and his circumstances to him. And folks, we know that this faith is why God accepted Abel's offering. Because in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, in the hall of faith, we read this. By faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, not his offering, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Friends, this is what faith is. Faith, according to Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Faith is trusting that what God's promises say about who he is and how he can be trusted are a better foundation to stand on in life than what is our own and what is our own personalities and our own giftings, whatever they may be. Faith is trusting that God is supremely valuable and nothing else in life can sustain us like he can sustain us. It says in Hebrews that God commended Abel. God accepted his gift because it was a demonstration of this, this faith and this trust that Abel had in who God was. Folks, listen, if you are new here to Redeemer Fellowship, you need to know that this is what Christianity is all about. As sin entered into the world and enters into all of our lives and it separates us from God, sin separates, it is faith, faith like Abel's that unites us back to God. Christianity is not about the sacrifice that you bring. It's not about how much you pay in church. It's not about how much you serve in church. It's not a matter of how loudly you worship in church. No, you cannot give enough of who you are or of the possessions you have to earn God's favor. But Christianity is marked by faith that the God who could have righteously condemned you in your sin is eagerly willing to accept you if you believe in the work that he has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. 
Christianity is not about the sacrifice that you bring. It's more about the sacrifice that God has offered on your behalf through the death and resurrection of Jesus, his only son. Hebrews chapter 12 says that the blood of Jesus speaks, I love this, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Meaning that, that while Abel's blood cried out from the ground for vengeance, well, while Abel's blood cried out as a clear demonstration of how far humanity had fallen from God's favor, the shed blood of Jesus cries out even louder, not for vengeance, but for forgiveness. Those who believe in the work that Christ has done will greatly be forgiven. They will be commended as righteous, even as Abel was. That, that means that, that Abel's faith, his trust in God, made him right in God's sight. He's no longer in a place of being wrong. He is seen as right, as righteous, as holy, as pure. His sins were no longer held against him all because he believed in the work that God was going to do through his son on the cross. Faith is what united Abel back to God, and this faith is the faith that unites you and I back to God. And folks, here's the amazing thing. Not only does faith unite us back to God, we also see that this faith has the ability and the power to unite us back to each other as well. Those who have been given this faith know that, that to trust God in this way is to, is to find and experience perfect peace with God. And that, and that united relationship with God now becomes our greatest identity in life. There's nothing better than this. This is now who we are. And so those who have this faith don't need to prove themselves to others. They, they don't need to go around pushing their weight around in order to get what they want. They, they don't need to demand respect from others because they know that their identity is secure, safely in Christ. Friend, this is one of the most profound aspects of our Christian faith. Christians are able to be wronged in very real, very severe ways. Christians are able to be sinned against and disappointed by others and not retaliate in like manner because their faith in Christ has become a greater identity than their need for respect or for care from other people. They have everything that they need in Christ and in the gospel. Again, in the book of James, James talks about how as people we fight and quarrel because of how our passions are at war within us. When, when we want what we want, it separates us from God and from others. We go, and James says, we curse those who are made in God's image. It makes no sense. But then in James chapter 4, it also says that when we humble ourselves before the Lord, the devil flees from us. He is no longer able to divide us because our fleshly passions and our desires are no longer what control us and he doesn't have that foothold. When we have faith in God, church, we have everything that we need and we don't need to demand things of our spouse. We don't need to demand things of our kids or our boss or our coworkers or our neighbors or anyone else. We have everything that we need because we have peace with God and that peace begins to extend to all of the relationships around us. 
I can get up on Monday morning and not become angry and irritable because I didn't get what I want or, or someone didn't serve me in the way that I hoped. I can get up on Monday morning and joyfully serve and love my family because I know regardless of what happens to me, I know what has also been done for me. My identity is with Christ. David Berkowitz, the, the son of Sam, was right when he said that it is perfectly logical for those who are controlled by sin and evil to, to go in and hate and to do harm to other people. That, that's absolutely true. But he was also right when he said that those who are controlled by their faith in God are those that are free to go and to love and to serve each other and to live in a united way together in Christ and in the gospel. And so, Redeemer Fellowship, may God unite us together through our faith in the work that he has done for us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.